This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. To Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. Uh, my name is Amy. I'm a recovering sexaholic. I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. And I just wanted to really quickly give you a reminder before we start our episode today about our 30-day talking back challenge. If you haven't gotten on the website yet or you haven't listened to episodes 12, 14, and then 16, which will be our, our part three, um, you'll want to do it. We've got a great group of women that are engaging in this challenge and uh, are really dis- excited. I'm really excited about what we're going to accomplish and what we're going to do for the month of April. So make sure you get on the website and join that Talking Back Challenge. There's worksheets and all sorts of things that you can download there. Also, just a reminder, I think I've reminded you before, but again, in April, coming up in April, we're going to feature um, the first of what I hope is many episodes featuring women's stories. We have two lined up, but I would love to add your story to the mix. And even if it's not in April, if it's further on, I would love to add your story. You can contact me either via the website or you can just email me directly, amyamy at worthrecovery.com. And the website is www.worthrecovery.com. So I'm excited for those things that are that are coming up. Today, though, is episode 15, and this is the continuation of our deep dive series about the 12 steps. This is the final episode and focus on step one. Remember that step one is we admitted we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. In episode nine, we discussed the first half of that statement. We discussed what powerlessness is and some of the gifts that powerlessness brings into our lives. In episode 11, we discussed the second half of that statement. We discussed unmanageability and we talked about what that looks like and I challenge you to dig a little deeper into the unmanageability in your life. In episode 13, we discussed what a step one inventory is, how to work step one and what that looks like in our recovery process. Today, episode 15, I want to discuss step one as a life principle. I wanna take a little bit of a different slant to it and really focus on step one as a life principle. If there is anything that I have learned, if there's one thing that I've learned in recovery, it is that the 12 steps are not limited to addiction or recovery at all. They are life principles that everyone can use and everyone can benefit from. I, am, I have 100% confidence in that. I believe that all the way to my core. You know, AA didn't really start out with written 12 steps at all. In 1935, when AA was founded, there were no written 12 steps. Um, what That came later in an attempt to offer suggestions and kind of a recovery process to the people that were joining AA. Someone asked the first 100-ish sober alcoholics in AA what they did differently this time around that really helped to break that hold that alcoholism had in them. At that point, it was a disease that had barely been defied by all medical and even religious remedies throughout history. The group said that they discussed the evolutionary process of their recovery, and they did this over a period of time. 
And then Bill W., the co-founder of AA, documented that process on what they used to obtain sobriety. And that was the beginning of the 12 steps. That's how they came to be. I think it's a fascinating process. The 12 steps really are just a model for change. They got a number of people in in the same room that had changed their lives, dramatically changed their lives. Not just little changes, but dramatic. And they discussed how that happened, kind of that evolutionary process. And from there, they wrote a series of steps, a model for change. There are millions of change models out there. I know because I study them for work. That's what I do. As a strategic planner, I need to know several change models. I need to know how to apply them. I need to know when the best situation is to use what model. The 12 steps are just one model for change. But it is a model that has been proven over and over and over and over and over again in life, right? And not just for little changes, but for massive, big life changes. They are successful because they require so much from the individual. They require everything from you. You can't really work the steps with one foot in and one foot out. It doesn't really work that way. You must put everything you have into the steps. Now, because I do a lot of teaching and a lot of speaking, and because recovery is a huge part of my life, one of the things I've kind of been forced to do, I've had to learn how to do, is translate recovery language into lingo that works for everyone in and out of a recovery program, right? I wanted to make sure that the concepts I was teaching and that I was using, that anybody could understand and relate to. It's challenging, I'll be honest, it's been super challenging, but it's also been amazingly rewarding because you start to recognize the 12 principles and the the 12 steps and the principles behind those steps in everything. Everything. I'm serious. Everything. I can be anywhere listening to anything and pull out some 12 step principles. Truth is truth is truth is truth no matter where you find it. My mom taught me that, right? She would always say it four times. Truth is truth is truth is truth no matter where you find it. And if you're looking for it, you'll start to see it everywhere. I really believe that the universe kind of conspires to bring truth to us in a variety of different ways until we find the way and the method that resonates with us and we hold on to that and that becomes part of our truth. But reality is that these principles are everywhere in every change model I've seen. So let's take that now and kind of look at it and apply that to step one. How does step one apply to our lives in general as a life principle? Because it is truth. And how does that apply as a life principle for us? So the spiritual principle and kind of essence in step one, for me at least, is really kind of that choosing bottom. It's the recognition that the unmanageability in my life has become overwhelming And that by myself, of my own will, my own self-knowledge, and my own power, I can't fix it. That's really kind of the essence of step one, right? Admitting that powerlessness, admitting defeat. Um, It's that principle we talked about before from AA, admitting complete defeat, right? When we understand powerlessness and unmanageability, really understand them though, what I have seen is that people really start to embrace them in their lives. I know I did. When we understand that admitting complete defeat, it's not a shameful act. That being powerless over something or someone isn't a lack of self-discipline or self-control. What these principles really are, are just part of our journey as a human being on earth. 
everyone, whether they admit it or not, is powerless over most of the influences in their lives. We are powerless over people's actions and also their inactions. We are powerless over the weather, over our genetics, over disease, over cancer, over unknown faulty core beliefs that drive our behaviors that we don't even know about. That doesn't even begin to start to list what we are powerless over. But that doesn't mean that we are helpless. That's not what I'm saying. We're just powerless over these forces. And recognizing that helps us make better decisions. Now, also, anyone who studies physics knows about entropy, the idea that a closed system will eventually dissolve into disorder. Now, that's unmanageability if I've ever heard it. A closed system. That sounds like my life and addiction, a system that doesn't receive intervention, that's not receiving feedback, that's not making adjustments, that's not seeking consultation. That's definitely my life and addiction, right? A system that does not receive interventions or feedback, making adjustment, not making adjustments, and not seeking consultation will eventually end up in a state of unmanageability. Knowing that, if we are willing to admit it, helps us understand our options and our responsibilities to make better choices, make better decisions. When we put those together, that powerlessness and that unmanageability piece, right, we really start to see what our role is in making decisions. So, okay, so what does that look like now? What does that look like in our lives in general, right? Not necessarily in addiction, but just in our lives in general. The most readily available example that I could come up with and that I think really, really relates is software updates. Go with me here, okay? So software updates all of the time, right? And society kind of has this love-hate relationship with updates. When it's something we want, we rejoice when it updates and we're super excited. But when it's something we don't want, you know, we see whole Facebook petitions and all sorts of revolutions about these updates, right? Now, think about like think about the Facebook, the most recent um, update with Facebook reactions. Some people are so excited about reactions and some people are just upset because they didn't get the reaction that they wanted. Doesn't se- seems like it never is the right thing. Anyway, okay, so most of the updates, though, that happen, they're not like reactions on Facebook. They don't really affect us at all. They're small, little adjustments in the background. It's correcting a little bug here or something there. It's fixing a broken link or a function that wasn't quite working the way that it was intended. Now, software companies spend major money. I know this because I have lots of friends that do this. Spend major money, time, and resources fixing these bugs that we aren't even really aware of. They are constantly searching for these bugs, for these little errors, all of the time. In fact, they write programs that you install on your computer that send data back to them to tell them about that information and help them navigate and find the bugs. They have whole teams and whole departments that spend days, weeks, months sifting through all that information to find the cause of the problem and then write an update to fix it. They are constantly searching for the unmanageability, get that word, for the unmanageability in their product and they're fixing it over and over and over and over and over and over again, making it better, making it better for you and for me to use. They don't spend time lamenting the fact that the bugs are there. They don't get angry because they don't know when they're going to show up or that they even exist at all. They just know that it will come. They understand that they are powerless, get that word, over the bugs. 
They're going to come no matter what. That as software and technology changes and as hackers get more and more clever, chinks in the armor will be uncovered, holes in the code and the processes in the carefully designed software or application will be revealed. They know this. They accept it. And they develop teams and processes to handle it when it comes. Again, no fight, no, no murmuring that it happened to them. They just prepare themselves, accept the information as it comes, and do what they can to fix it. But I bet you can think of a software company that didn't update their software, or went out of business and left, let their software lapse, or announced that they weren't going to support a certain version or a certain, or a certain program. When that happens, the software falls into a state of disrepair and unmanageability. I worked with a software like that for a long time at one of my jobs. The company didn't want to move forward to a new program because of the pain involved in changing. But the cost of that was 15 years worth of electronic student records. They lost 15 years worth of records because the software was not being maintained. Talk about unmanageability and a feeling of powerlessness. So how do we how do we take that and apply it to our lives, right? So I'm going to give you one story personally from me, and then I'm going to give you a process on how to make that happen. Recently, my phone died. After four years of a long and healthy life, I dropped it just right, hitting the right corner that it shattered into a million pieces. Okay, not quite a million. I don't want to exaggerate, but enough, right? Enough pieces. It didn't work. I went to the store the next morning and I got a new phone. The guy at the phone store was offering his condolences, and I could tell he just really, really felt bad. And he said something like, oh, I'm sure you lost so much stuff and all your pictures. I hate it when that happens. And I could tell this was something that had happened to him, right? So I asked him a little bit, like, did this happen to you? Did you lose all your pictures? And he told me a story. However, when he asked me again, did you lose a lot of stuff? I very happily replied, nope, I am totally good to go. Now, why was I good to go? Because I have three separate phone backup systems. The data and information, including my apps, backs up to three different places. I turned on my phone, my new phone, I activated it, and it took a little while, I would say about four hours, but four hours later, every app, every contact, all my data, all my files, all my pictures, everything, everything was there. See, this has happened to me before, and I lost everything. I lost a phone and lost everything. After that, I recognized I'm powerless over my phone. I could lose it. It could get stolen. It could die. It could fall into the water. My nephew could push the reset button while playing a game. It could spontaneously just quit. I've seen that happen too. It could contract a virus. There's many, many, many things that could happen. I'm really powerless over so many of those things. And I don't, I don't live by my phone, not like some people, but it is pretty essential to both my business and my personal life. It was a major problem the last time it happened. Major frustration, major issues, major unmanageability. So when I got a phone again, I decided I am powerless over my phone. So I decided that I was not going to let that happen to me again. So this time I took precautions. I set up a redundant backup system so that I wouldn't have to worry about it again. Was I sad to lose my phone when it broke into a million pieces? Yes. I don't really like adjusting to new phones. But was there any moment I was worried about data 
or unmanageability or things like that? No, not at all, because I had taken action. Admitting my powerlessness and the unmanageability it caused opened the door for me to be responsible if I choose to be. See, stuff happens. We have these influences in our lives that we are absolutely powerless over. We aren't always even aware of them all the time, but they are there. Things happen. Really big things happen. Cancer, suicide, divorce, death, major accidents, war, genocide, terrorists attacked, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, loss of employment, elections, big things. Things that will shake us to our very core and and ask us to question our own beliefs about the world, the purpose of life, and our direction. And little things happen as well. Late friends, rude comments, days of loneliness, a recipe that didn't turn out quite as planned, a bad hair day, a crushed phone, right? All of these things, we don't have control over either. We're powerless over them. They will happen no matter our life choices. Even if we are absolutely perfect in every thought, word, or deed, things will happen. We are powerless over them. We're powerless over them happening and even over the unmanageability that they bring into our lives. And so because of that, we have an opportunity. We have the opportunity to be like software companies. Does that seem weird? Yeah, probably. But let me tell you, okay? We have the opportunity to be like software companies. First, software companies quit fighting. They don't spend time thinking, why us? Why did our software get a bug? They know that all software is prone to bugs. They don't come up with conspiracy theories about it. They don't spend time feeling targeted. They don't turn to the sky and blame a higher power for the bug in their software. They don't turn to other people and say things like, wow, if you really loved our software, you wouldn't even report a bug. (laughs) Yeah, they don't do that. They have admitted their powerlessness over bugs in their software. We need to do that. We need to admit our powerlessness over things happening in our lives and in our world and recognize that all lives and all people are prone to things happening. We need to quit feeling like the world is conspiring against us when these things happen. We need to quit feeling targeted. We need to not turn to our higher power and and blame them for it. We don't turn to others and blame them for things happening in our lives. We recognize that things happen to people all the time. And that is part of the human journey. That's part of the human journey whether you have an addiction or not. It doesn't matter. Things will happen. The second thing that software companies do is they get curious. Software companies spend a lot of time trying to understand the problem. See, because once you admit your powerlessness over it, it's going to happen. Then you have all sorts of time to, to think about questions. Once they've accepted the bug is there, they ask questions about it. How did this happen? They begin by examining their own programming. Did we cause this? Did we do something that made this happen? Was our thought process faulty? Next, they examine the outside influences. Was this caused by an interaction with another program? A specific type of program? A specific platform that they were using? They ask questions and they follow the answers. They get consultation. They spend time understanding all of the aspects of the problem. When I quit fighting with the problem, I can then get curious about the problem. 
And we can do the same thing in our lives. We can get curious about the problems happening in our lives. How did this happen? Was it something I caused or contributed to? Was my thinking faulty? Was my behavior faulty? Was it outside forces? Was it an interaction with another person or a group of people? Maybe a type of person. We can take time. We can ask the questions. We can consult with trusted advisors, people that know better, people that know us, people that understand things. And we can understand as much about the problem as possible. When we quit fighting with the problem, we can understand the problem. Now, the third thing that software companies do after they understand the problem is they determine a solution. Once they have an understanding of the problem, it's time to work on a solution. Now, these solutions can involve many, many things. I think they probably examine what they can control and they fix the code and the programming that is their responsibility. Then they turn and examine those outside influences and they make determinations about what is essential and what is necessary and what is nice to have. Once they kind of examine those outside influences, then they have the opportunity to set boundaries. They create widgets or plugins that make interaction between software nice and easy. They find solutions. They work to find those solutions. Now we can do the same thing. Once we've examined and understood our problem in our lives, whatever it is, we can also determine our own solution. We use our new information to fix our own programming. We take responsibility for the things within our control, like backing up our phones, right? And we set boundaries with outside influences. Now, I know that both of these things are harder than they sound. I'm not trying to trivialize this process at all. I've been in recovery for five years now, and I still feel like there are things in my life I need to fix, programming I need to change, and outside influences that need better boundaries. Definitely need better boundaries. Am I better than I was five years ago, though? Absolutely. I'm light years ahead of where I was five years ago. But there is still progress that can be made. There always is. Okay, the fourth step and the last step is that software companies then repeat the process. They don't make one modification and then sit around and call it good. They are continually looking for more bugs. They're looking for ways to improve. They're looking for ways to make the experience better for themselves and their customers. Too often though in our own lives, we fix something and then we look around and say, we're good, we're done, I got this. Look at my progress. Look how much I've changed. Look at me, I'm so amazing. And that is so dangerous. We can't ever sit back and think we're done, ever. The moment that we do that, we become irrelevant, just like software that is not being maintained or updated. If we are not engaged in the process of moving forward, life will leave us behind. Now, I also understand that this is a hard balance because we want to be content with where we are, happy about our progress and the things going on in our lives. And we definitely need to celebrate things that we do well. But we also need to have that drive to continually move forward. And it's just one of those paradoxes that we have in life. Contentment with reality positioned against the drive to move forward. I know it's a hard balance, but it's, it's a necessary balance. There are too many people in the world content with where they are, and they have become stagnant. Too long in that position, and you can become irrelevant. See, step one really is a life principle. We are powerless and our lives become unmanageable. 
Once we're willing to admit that, to really let that reality sink into our souls and our bones, we recognize the amazing power and responsibility that comes with that. We start to let go of what we can't control. We quit fighting with what we are powerless over. We quit feeling victimized and targeted, recognizing that everyone is powerless over so many things. And when we quit fighting, we have time to be curious about the problem. We become empowered to ask questions. We start looking for understanding and additional causes and effects. In that process, we start to control what we can control. Our reactions, our thoughts, our words. We start to clean up our programming. We take responsibility for ourselves. When we fix that problem, we repeat the process until it becomes a habit, our new way of life. That is what it means to live in recovery. That is what it means when we say that the 12 steps become a new way of life. And step one, powerlessness is the gate. It's the gate that gets us on the path. Seeing our own powerless state helps us to be willing to open that gate and start on the road of recovery. Now, thankfully, there are 11 more steps that act as guideposts along the way. Steps that help us in the process of learning how to clean up our programming and how to control our own thoughts, words, and deeds. But without powerlessness, without the willingness to admit that I can't do this all on my own, it won't matter. I hope you found this deep dive into step one helpful. Every time I revisit the steps, every time I work them from a new angle or from a new perspective, I am amazed at their power and depth. I am grateful for the steps in my life. I am grateful for the change factor that they have been in my life. I challenge you really for the next 24 hours as you listen to people talk, participate in conversations, spend time with people, read, start looking for evidence of the steps. Truth is truth is truth is truth no matter where you find it. And the universe has a way of bringing truth to the surface over and over and over again if we're looking for it. We will continue our deep dive with these steps in episode 17, where we'll begin to look at step two. I'm really excited for this one. Now, don't forget, you can find us on iTunes by searching Worth Recovery. If you're an iTunes fan, go on and subscribe. Also, please give us a rating and a little shout out, maybe a comment about one of the episodes that has really, really helped you. We would love that. As always, as always, I want you to know that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel right now in this moment, no matter how powerless you feel or how unmanageable your life has become, you are worth recovery. 100% worth it. Stay the course and keep up the fight. I really think about you all the time. I pray for you and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.